Now you should have with you um, a, a sheet like this, which uh, I thought we'd um, we'd include just to help you visualise what we're speaking about. Sometimes a picture speaks a thousand words, so you don't want me talking another thousand words on top of what I normally speak. So I'd, I'd, I reckon a picture would um, would be useful to you. And today we'll be finishing off the actual uh, statue. Um, we're heading down to the feet and to actual toes themselves. And we'll also be comparing it to, you'll notice in, that, uh, in this diagram, the top part, the top half of the diagram, you'll notice it, it's a second column which says lion, bear, leopard, terrifying and frightening beast. Um, we're going to be looking at those and we're going to be comparing them to Revel, the book of Revelation. So who has... Who struggles with, you know, when, when you, you hear about beasts in the Bible with seven heads and ten horns and all these things? Okay, all right. We're going to hopefully make it very simple for you today. Uh, we're going to break it down to the basics. And we're hopefully going to show you that a lot of these things are actually building one on top of the other. And they're just, I, they're just pointing out something that's slightly different each time. So, so see, how you've no, see how it says you've got the statue on the left-hand side. With the head of gold, the chest and arms of silver, the belly and the thighs of bronze, legs of iron. And it says feet of clay. It's actually feet of clay and iron, okay, not just clay. But then it lines up directly with lion, bear, leopard, terrifying beast. And that second vision, or that vision that uh, Daniel has, which we'll be looking at today, coincides with those four kingdoms that we've already been talking about for the last few weeks. And then there's another vision we're going to be looking at in the book of Revelation, which John gives, which once again repeats the same thing. It just gives you a different aspect to it. So we're going to, we're going to kill two beasts today with one sermon. Um, and by the end of it, hopefully you'll have a, a very clear idea about, look, a lot of this stuff sometimes looks um, uh, complicated. And there's a lot of detail in it, but if you understand the basics... Once you've got that down, then you can, you can then jump to the next level and start looking at the, the, the details. So I can't give you every detail this morning, but we can look at enough that, that when you get to that, that place once again in your Bible reading, in your regular Bible reading, you won't be scared of it. You'll have an idea of what it's about. Okay? All right, turn with me to Daniel chapter 2, verse 31, as we continue our look at this uh, statue that King Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about. And we'll read from verse 31 to 35 this morning. Daniel chapter 2, verse 31 to 35. Read with me. How are we going with that? A lot of paper shuffling still. We're there? Good, good. Daniel chapter 2, verse 31. Thou, O king, sawest, and behold a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form thereof was terrible. The image's head was of fine gold, his breast and his arms of silver, his belly and his thighs of brass, his legs of iron, his feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest till that a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them to pieces." Then was the iron, the clay, the brass, the silver and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff 
of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away that no place was found for them, and the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Let's, uh, let's open a word of prayer before we look into this passage. Father, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you for this opportunity that we can look into it. Father, I pray that our hearts would be now settled, that we would put behind us the things of this, uh, this past week, that we would firmly be focused and, uh, and our thoughts would be only upon your word. I pray that you would give us the attention, that you would help us uh, to understand, and Father, that you would help me to properly communicate your truth. And Lord, I just pray this morning that uh, as um, the word goes forth, I pray that it would have an effect in our lives, that uh, it would be firmly planted within our hearts, that it would take root, that it would grow and that it would bear fruit for your glory. We thank you once again for your goodness to us. We thank you for your precious word. And we ask that you once again will be glorified through it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Have you ever wondered what the political map of the world will look like in about another 10 years if we're still here? Ever wondered that? Going back, I mean, most of us have a few years at the moment under our belts. But I remember a lot of political events that took place. You know, remember the fall of the Berlin Wall? Do you, remember, do you remember that? And they were breaking it down and all that sort of stuff. And that was a pretty significant event that took place. Remember the, um, the economic meltdowns that we've had over the past you know, number of years, some really bad ones uh, where people lost lives and lost all their savings. And I remember you know, the, the, the price of houses here in Melbourne went, went like that at one stage, went right down to the bottom and everyone was scared about what, you know, what was going to happen, their jobs were going to go. And, and if you look at the way the world's changed over the last even 50 years. Now, consider that it's, it's been, civilization has been going for thousands and thousands of years, but in the last 50 years, right, how much change has taken place? It's incredible. Remember China, right? China 50 years ago, what was China doing? China, China was an insular country. It didn't want much to do with the outside world. Communism was really strong there, and they didn't want to be messing around with, you know, with, with economies and doing trade. Now China is a bigger, almost a bigger trader than, than America. They've opened up their borders in a sense, they've opened up trade, people fly in and out of that place you know, with, with, with regular ease and China is a very different place today than it was 50 years ago. And the same thing with a lot of other things. Now 50 years ago, a lot of the countries like America, you know, Australia, England, were very strong with the faith. A lot of people actually believed. And today we find, we find that, that our countries have almost become completely secular over a short amount of time. But there are a lot of other things that have happened, and I'm sure you can, you can raise a number of other examples about how the world's completely changed over the last, uh, last 50 years. But does the Bible say anything about what's coming? Does the Bible say, give us any indication about what's to come and, and where the world's headed? Because we see all this change happening. You, know, you have things like the United Nations and the G20 and the G7 and, the, and, you know, and all these different um, agreements and unions and all things that are taking place. Um, but does the Bible give us any indication about what those things mean and how they fit? And is there a particular plan or a, a direction the world's heading? And the answer is yes. The Bible actually gives us a lot of detail about, uh, about what's coming in the future. And part of, part of this, uh, this sermon is to help us to understand what's on its way. Okay? 
If you have ever read any of uh, Nostradamus' prophecies, okay. To make sense of Nostradamus' prophecies, you have to, you have to really stretch the imagination a very long, long way to actually make one sense of it. Do you know what I mean? They, you have to change names and words and things. And and he 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 recorded his prophecies in what were called quatrains or or like a, like a a poem, right? But everything is abstract, everything. There's nothing that, that you could say, that definitely means this. Not even one aspect of it. The difference with the Bible is that it gives us specific details. Specific. God doesn't mess around. And God doesn't have to mess around. God is able to give us specific details about what's coming in the future. And he gives us a lot of detail. Now, hopefully we'll, we'll get into a bit more of this detail um, in the coming weeks. Uh, but today, we're going to continue our look at this statue or this dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had who was, um, who was the Babylonian emperor. Okay? He was the greatest, most powerful man in the world at that stage and a fellow called Daniel who was from a royal family in, uh, in Israel had been taken into exile into, into that, uh, that, 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 um, the city and he was being trained as a royal advisor, believe it or not. So Daniel was a young man and along with his friends were being trained with, in Babylonian ways, but they retained and they kept the faith. In the middle of being in a foreign country in, with foreign customs and foreign laws and religion, um, they kept the faith and God used Daniel in extraordinary ways. There are, there are extraordinary prophecies in Daniel and we're looking at one of them right now. So just to recap a little bit, the four kingdoms... Remember, we looked at the head of gold, the chest and arms of silver, the belly and thighs of bronze, were basically representative of Babylon. Right? We started with King Nebuchadnezzar, and, and Daniel says, You, O king, are that head of gold. And your kingdom is represented by that. Then it goes down to the chest, and he says, But after you is going to come another kingdom, inferior to yours, but pretty strong, at, at just the same who were the Persians and the Medean Empire. Now, they were a, a joint empire, and they're represented by the chest and the arms of silver. And the fact that there are actually two arms pictures it perfectly, what the actual kingdom was like, because it was a joint, two, two types of people in the same empire. Okay? And King Cyrus was the first in that one there as well. And the Bible actually predicted not just that the Persians would come, it actually said, it actually says, it, hundreds of years before, Cyrus would be the name of the guy who's going to be the king. So there's no other, there is no other uh, prophetic book anywhere in the world that, that comes close to the Bible. Okay? The next one, which is the belly and the thighs of bronze, was represented or representative of the Greek Empire. So when the, the, the Persians fell to, the, to Alexander the Great, and Alexander the Great was... Was, a, uh, was an emperor in his own right who died at a very young age, but by the time he was 33 years of age, he conquered pretty much the entire world, went down to India, went all over the place. So he was a, a, an incredible uh, man and, and achieved great things in a very short amount of time. And last week we looked at this, these legs of iron and what they represented. And the, the, the fourth kingdom was Rome. And Rome was symbolised by iron, it being the hardest, toughest of, of the metals of all these. So it's, iron is 
stronger than brass, stronger than silver, and stronger than gold. It's tough, and the Romans were pretty tough, but it's not as a noble a metal as, as, these other, um, as these other ones were. Now, we're heading down to the feet, and the feet are a mixture of clay and of iron. So the question is, has the Roman Empire altogether disappeared off the face of the earth? Because it lasted for a very, very long time. And the answer to that is, not really. It hasn't completely gone away. It's been dormant for a number of years, but it hasn't gone out of existence altogether. There have been a number of elements of it which has continued to persist, and it hasn't completely uh, disappeared. And it may be pointing to a much larger system to come that will eventually encompass the whole world. Now, ever since the demise of the Roman Empire, or the Holy Roman Empire, Europeans have been dreaming of reviving this whole thing, of having a united Europe, which was absolutely powerful and, and uh, together and united. And a number of them have tried to reclaim that power um, that Europe once had, and many have tried to reunify Europe. Because after the, after the Roman Empire, it got split up into all these different countries. So all the countries that you see, I explained to you uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago, even last week I think it might have been, that all the countries you see with France and Italy, and all, they were the actual Germanic tribes that, that spread across Europe. And as Rome sort of slowly imploded, um, they took chunks of it and they settled down in those areas. So the Anglo-Saxons went across to, uh, to England and they settled over there, and so you have the Anglo-Saxons in England. You have the Lombardians uh, who went and settled in, uh, in, in Italy. Okay? You have the Franks who moved across, I think it was to, to France, but I'm not sure. I think they were the, the Franks may have been the Germans, but there's a whole heap of them. The Visigoths, I think, went across to, uh, to France. But all these different tribes settled in Europe, but a lot of them actually maintained or kept the Roman Empire's official religion, which was Catholicism. Okay? Because by that stage, Catholicism had been entrenched. There was the, uh, the, the, the Vatican was in place. There were popes in place. And it had become, and Constantine had made it, the official religion of the whole empire. And that kept going. It didn't stop. So those Germanic tribes adopted those, or that, that particular religion and kept it as the official religion of Europe. Okay, so a number of, um, of Europeans though, have tried to revive that whole empire again. And the first one to do it, or the first one that made any significant headway into this was Napoleon. Right? Napoleon. Okay? Napoleon, by 1812, had united most of Europe. He had, he had actually had either under, the, under his rule or had, they had sworn allegiance to him. He had conquered the Middle East, including Egypt, had all of Central Europe, including Italy, Norway, Spain and France, under his control, and he was proclaimed and crowned the King of Italy. In fact, he proclaimed himself the Emperor as well in France in a special ceremony. And he even captured Moscow at one stage, but couldn't keep on to it because a little bit too much, uh, too much work for him over there. But eventually he failed, and he lost at the Battle of... Waterloo. The English ruined it for him completely. Okay? So he lost 
and his idea of uniting, of having a completely united Europe with him as the emperor was a vision that he had because he wanted, once again, the Roman Empire reunited and revived. The next to try to revive the Roman Empire was Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany. Now, do you, do you know what Kaiser Wilhelm, what he, he was a German, the German king, right? Actually, the word Kaiser is another word for Caesar. Okay? So, the Caesar, Wilhelm, which is William, um, wanted to be the uniting emperor of a united Europe. So he tried. And guess what happened? World War I. Okay? World War I came about. There was a lot of fighting. Many people, millions and millions were killed. Um, and it, what he, his idea to, to create a united Europe failed miserably. And between 1914 and 1918, when, the, when he lost, finally lost the war and capitulated, um, he was forced to abdicate his throne. The next one, who really made a good, good uh, show of it, was Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler had a dream of becoming the, the ruler of a united Europe. Okay? And... Um, Together with Italy and Spain, who basically allied themselves with him, his armies rampaged across Europe and downing one nation after the other after the other. But after another world war, where America got involved and, and England and resisted for a number of years, he failed, and after a few million deaths again, um, and Europe lay in ruins after this, um, the dream was once again lost. You'll notice there might be a common thread in all this because as pesky English uh, and Americans, when they get together, they've managed to stop uh, those three attempts at trying to unify uh, Europe under a, a one emperor. Okay? Um, so what they weren't able to achieve by war and by conquering, they're now trying to unite Europe through political means. Okay? So... The European Union was born a number of years ago, and today it seems like sometimes an, a, a, an awkward and often edgy group with money problems and internal conflicts, but there's a reason for it. There's a reason for it. Let's look, let's look back at Daniel, Daniel, uh, Daniel's prophecy, and we're going to just look at half a verse today, okay? Just half. Although I'll be probably reading about 50 verses after that, but I'm only looking at half the verse. And verse 33 says, His legs of iron and his feet part of iron and part of clay. And that's what we're looking at this, this, this uh, morning. Um, we saw last week the legs obviously represented the Roman Empire, which was stronger and vaster than, than the empires before it. Now, iron represents the strength of, of that particular empire, but we see something else being introduced. And we now have iron, which is strong, mixed with clay. Okay. How strong can that be? It's a bit hard because clay is a bit brittle. It falls apart. Um, it doesn't attach too well to iron, although a lot, of, a lot of clay has iron mixed up in it as well. That's why you get those black bits if you've ever, ever um, cooked clay. Turn, go down to verse 41 for me. 
because God gives Daniel a bit more of a description or, or an explanation as to what these feet and toes mixed with clay are about. He says in verse 41, Whereas thou sawest the feet and toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. But there shall be in it of the strength of the iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. So the kingdom will have strength, but it will be divided. In other words, there will be competing interests. There won't just be one guy calling the shots who has, who has complete control in this situation, um, like Babylon. See, Babylon was a, was, was a head of gold. Anything that he said, anything that King Nebuchadnezzar said, was done. You know, do you remember when the, when, the, when the thing first came to pass, when he had that dream and he called all his astrologers and all his wise guys to come in and explain the whole thing to him, that none of them could do it? What did he decree? Kill them all. That's a guy with power. And there was no one to give an account to either. He wasn't, didn't give an account to people or anyone else. He could just do what he wanted, when he wanted. There was, there was nothing that could, that could thwart him. He had absolute power. The difference now is that there's iron here, but there's something that's, that's keeping it apart. It doesn't quite stick together properly to achieve its purpose. And let's see if, uh, let's see if the, the scriptures explain a little bit more. Look at verse 42. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. All right, so partly strong and partly broken. Okay. There are a number of interpretations of these, these verses. And let's look at verse 43 as well. What does it mean, partly strong and partly broken? And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. But they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. Hmm, what's miry clay? It's like muddy clay, right? You know when you, when you, when you, do, when you do pottery? It's got to be really soft, doesn't it? You can't do pot. You know the, the, the thing that turns around. You, it can't be like hard. It has to be quite soft, so you, you can you can mould and use it. Well, this is miry clay, so that's what it's like. And it's saying it's muddy, it's squishy, it's got iron mixed up, and it. it doesn't tend to stay in one place at any any one time. It doesn't. It, it isn't quite solid. Okay, so there are a number of interpretations of this verse, and and many many uh, Bible commentators and um, theologians have looked at it and said, oh, you know what that means. That means that where they're not they're mingling themselves with the seed of men. What it is is, do you remember if you go back a hundred years or so, right? And you look at Europe. Europe had royal families almost in every in every country. Most of the countries about a hundred years ago were ruled by royal families, probably more. Okay, um, how many royal families are ruling in Europe now? Almost none. Almost none. Because most of them are democratic countries. So what some people have surmised is that, is that do you know how you form an allegiance between royal families and two kingdoms? You get your kids to marry. Right? So what they do, you've probably seen this in movies and stuff like that, where one kingdom wants to form an allegiance, another one, they go, I'll give you my son, you give your daughter for my son, and uh, you know, we'll form an allegiance. And once they're married, it's pretty hard to break them up. Um, so all of a sudden you've got You've got an allegiance, you've got an alliance between those two countries. But this is, 
Does this mean that? Because if this is any time in the future now, and mind you, there has never been a time in history where there's been, where there's been these miry clay. I'll, I'll explain a bit more to you a bit later on. But going back a few hundred years, it, would have, it probably would have been an obvious thing to say, oh, look at that, that's what that means. But now in our day, where you have almost every royal family either deposed or just as a figurehead there, so that a lot of the countries have left the royal families, but they have absolutely no power because they have a constitutional monarchy like England, which the royal family doesn't make any decisions on behalf of anyone. They don't, they don't make decisions about how the economy goes or where to fight. and They don't do any of that. It's actually a, a government that does it, an elected government. So what can this mean? Well, I think in our age, I think that that miry clay mixed with iron represents democracy. And the reason I believe that the kingdom shall have strength but also weakness is that iron represents absolute power. Iron represents the power of a, uh, of a country. Um, but if you, don't, if you don't have absolute control and authority to use that power, then you don't have that. You have, you have a mingling there, don't you? You don't, you don't have absolute rule like King Nebuchadnezzar had. Imagine if King Nebuchadnezzar was in charge of America. He could just make a decision and go to war with anyone he wanted and do whatever he wanted. But you can't do that in our society. No European nation can, can just make a decision, or the leader of that nation, just make a decision and they have to follow it. And you can use that power that they have in their arms or their, or their, uh, their armed forces to do whatever they like. So iron represents the power, but it says there that they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. But they will not stick or cling one to another. You know, this perfectly describes democracy. Absolutely, absolutely perfectly. Polit politicians, have you ever seen election time? Politicians have to mingle during election time. But when do royal families go and mingle with the, with the commoners? For what reason do they mingle? They don't have to. Politicians have to spend time. They have to show themselves... Uh, to be on, to be uh, fighting for the interests of their constituents, of the people. They they're continually trying to sell us stuff about why we should be choosing them, so they mingle with us. The people who rule have strength. Our politicians have strength, but they rely on men and women who vote to keep them in there. So they have to continually rely and coerce and and convince. They will not cling to one another because they have limited terms. The people ultimately decide if they are in or if they are out. And that's dependent on whether they think the politicians are looking after them or not. Okay? So let me, let me explain the difference between, between the two systems. Compare America, the USA, to China. Right? China still has almost an absolute rule. Their, their ruling party can almost make a decision and do whatever they want. For example, if they want to build a dam, and they want to displace a few hundred thousand people to build a dam, no one's going to argue. And if they argue, they're not going to get anywhere. Okay? Whereas in America, for example, if you wanted to do that, you have a whole heap of rules and regulations and things and, and, and minorities and parties that are going to come and cause a heap of problems. So 
That's the difference between those two, those two types of systems. China has almost absolute authority, and I'll say almost because not completely. Um, and although America is strong, stronger than China militarily, it can't do what it wants. For example, Obama can't just go and do what he wants. He has to continually appease different factions within, within his government and within, within Congress to actually make decisions. Okay? Some would disagree. Some would say that he's actually going to make some, some unilateral decisions, but he can't do whatever he wants. Okay? But there is no other time in history that so close as matches, matches this picture of miry clay mixed with iron. All right. But why do the verses 41 and 42 mention of the ten toes? You know how there were two arms, uh, and those two arms represented the Medes and the Persians together, and then you got two legs, and those two legs represented the splitting of the Roman Empire that was east and west. Well, could the toes mean something? Okay, We're going to have a look at another passage which might, might explain to us something. Turn to Daniel chapter 7, because in this part... In this chapter, Daniel has another vision. God gives Daniel another prophecy, which gives Daniel a bit more information about what he saw. Now, before we read this thing, don't worry so much about all the detail. What I want you to take note of is what types of animal are there. Don't worry about how many wings they've got and heads they've got and all this sort of stuff. Just worry about what type of animal... It's referring to, and look at the order. Okay, Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four wings... Sorry, oh, sorry, Daniel chapter 7, verse 2. Sorry. I'm getting a bit excited, a bit ahead of myself. I'll try to calm down. Okay, Daniel chapter 7, verse 2. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven strove upon the great sea. Now, the, the, the sea is representative of the Gentile nations. Okay, So when you see the sea in the Bible, and it's symbolic, it's, it's always symbolic of the Gentile nations. The four, and four great beasts came up from the sea. Diverse, one from the other. That means different, one from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And I beheld to the wings, there, wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. So that's beast number one. And behold, another beast, a second, like a bear, and it raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it, between the teeth of it, and uh, they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. That's the second beast. After this I beheld, and lo, another, like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl. The beast also had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. Okay, so we've got three beasts here so far. You've got a lion, a bear, and a leopard. Now keep those in mind. Let's read on. Verse 7. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. That's interesting how it says iron. And devoured and break in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. I considered the horns. And behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, 
and a mouth speaking great things. Okay? Now, if you go into verse 17, it basically says, These great beasts, which are four, are four kings, which shall arise out of the earth. Right? It's your basic explanation. Four kings with four kingdoms that, that are associated with them. Now, these four beasts align exactly with the statue we've been talking about. So if you look at your, uh, if you look at your hand out there, you'll notice you've got your, you have your statue on the left with the head of gold. And the head of gold is represented by the lion. The lion represents the Babylonian Empire. The lion represents King Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? The chest and arms of silver are then represented by the bear. Okay? And the bear represents the Persians and the Medes. Then you have a belly and thighs of bronze, which you have represented by a leopard. And it's interesting because how fast did Alexander conquer the world? If you look at, at, at an animal... A leopard is much more agile. It's quick. Okay? Um, and then finally, you have the legs of iron. And, 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 um, and Daniel speaks about a terrifying beast uh, when he looks at it. But you'll notice that, that... You know how there were ten toes? Look at this beast. What does it have? Ten horns. So Daniel sees that this beast has ten horns. So this means something. Because then it gives us a little bit more information. And it says... Another little horn came up. So there were ten. Another little horn came up, and it, it managed to pluck out three of the other ones. <coughs> what does that mean? Let's have a look and see how, how, it, how it compares. Okay, so you have those four. So are they clear in your mind? Do you understand how they, how they picture? It's just the same message given in a different way. Okay? So those beasts represent the same empires that... <coughs> King Nebuchadnezzar uh, had as well. All right, now let's, let's look at the legs of iron and the feet and the toes of iron that, that, and clay that match Daniel's vision. Go down to verse 23 with me. Verse 23. Okay, this is the explanation of what Daniel then saw. Thus he said, the fourth beast, and we know that's Rome, all right? The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon earth which shall be diverse from all kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. Verse 24. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise. And another shall rise after them and he shall be diverse from the first. That's the first ten. And he shall subdue three kings. And he shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and a dividing of a time. All right. So the fourth kingdom, which is a terrible kingdom, which is different to all the other kingdoms before, has these ten horns, and those ten horns are ten kings that come up all at the same time. They exist at the same time. They're not one after the other after many years. They exist all at the same time. But while they're there in place, another, another little king comes up and he manages to, to put down three of those kings. He manages to defeat three of those who obviously have a disagreement with this, this, uh, this other king. Okay, So is that fair enough? Is that clear enough for you? 
All right. Okay. The ten toes match the ten horns. But when we get to the, the vision with the ten horns, we get another little bit of information which wasn't there in the statue, was it? You don't hear about another toe coming up. I used to have a friend in, in, in high school who had six toes. Um, he used to love showing his six toes. He used to put us off, but he used to have six toes <laughs> on each, each foot. But he thought it was quite um, impressive. But anyway. Um, so it doesn't talk about a six toe coming up. It defeats other three toes. Now, this is talking about... This vision gives us that little bit extra, and what we want to find out this morning is what that is about, and to see if there's any correlation between those, uh, those things. Okay. So the ten toes match the ten horns, and, and if you look at your, uh, your thing over here, the legs of iron, and the, we've, reached, we've reached the ten toes already. Okay? The ten toes are ten kings, represented by ten horns, in Daniel's vision of that terrifying beast that comes right at the end. So right at the end, your ten toes are ten kings. And we know that something else has, has come up. And it says that this horn, this last one, he subdues three others. He speaks things against... Now, he, Daniel calls him the Most High, which is God. Okay, the most high is God. So this, this one horn here, this king, manages to speak blasphemies against God. It says he wears out the saints. So he actually wars against people who are Christians and who believe. He changes the times and laws. Um, and it says that he will have control for time, for times, and dividing of a time. Now that's, that's significant. What's a time? What is times and what's, and what's the dividing of a time? Well, let's, let's keep it nice and simple. Let's say a time is a year, right? Let's say times are two years. And let's say dividing of a time, which is half a time, is half a year. That gives you how many? Three and a half years. Now, most of you already know that there are three and a half years mentioned in a number of other places in the Bible. Okay? Now, we've got way back in Daniel over here talking about three and a half years. Let's see if this comes up again, if this matches anywhere else in the Bible. Well, there's another fellow who had a vision. God gave a vision to a fellow called John. And John was a disciple of Jesus. And John was the same John that leant on Jesus' breast when, when they were lying together and eating. Because you know, in those days, they didn't eat at a table like us. They'd eat lying down with cushions and, they, and they'd be doing this. And, and John loved Jesus so much that he, he'd always wanted to be closer to him. Um, this is that John. And John is in the, on the island of Patmos. He's been basically imprisoned there. Can't go anywhere. Um, and God gives him this vision. So turn to Revelation chapter 13. And we'll see what John's vision is about this final beast that comes up in the world. And let's see if John gives us any more information. Okay, look at verse 1. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea. Now there's your sea again. So where's it coming from? This is the Gentile, this is a Gentile nation that's coming up. Having seven heads and ten horns. Oh, there we go. We've got ten horns again. And upon his horns ten crowns and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. 
Okay, so, so far, we have already some similarities between John and Daniel. There are ten horns on this thing. Each of those has a crown, and that's representative of a king, of, of actually a rule. Okay? Um, and he comes up out of the sea, and he says that upon his heads are the names of blasphemy. All right, so they're against God. The difference, though, is that John now says something else. He says that his, his beast has seven heads. Don't get confused, right? These seven heads are simply, if there's a Roman Empire, these are seven kings during the Roman Empire from beginning to the end. Seven specific kings or, type, or types of rule that exist um, during the Roman Empire. So those heads only represent the Roman Empire. The ten kings are the ones that exist right at the end. Now turn to, turn to chapter 17, verse 9. We'll just, we'll just let John explain to us what those seven heads are so you're, you're completely clear about it. You're not confused, all right? Revelation 17, 9, and here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. Okay, don't worry about the woman for the moment. Who knows, who knows where, um, what has seven hills? What's built on seven hills or seven mountains? Rome. Okay, guess what? There's a Roman Empire, all right? So let's have a look and see what, what's going on. Verse 10, and there are seven kings. There you go. There's your seven heads. There are seven kings. Five are fallen, and one is in John's day. One was in existence in John's day, and the other is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. All right? So, in John's day, there were five kings that had already come and gone in the Roman Empire. John doesn't tell us who they are. doesn't have to. Don't worry about it. All right? But in his day, there was one king in place. There was one who was current, who was the sixth. And we know who the king was, who the emperor was in John's day. It was Nero. Hmm? Nero was a funny character. Right? Nero was the same Nero that was fiddling while Rome was burning to the ground and blamed the Christians for it as well. But this Nero is an interesting guy because he starts off a nice guy, believe it or not. Nero actually starts off actually quite friendly, quite, quite gentle, and then he flips. Nero flips at a particular time and all of a sudden starts persecuting Christians and doing all types of nasty things. We don't know whether he had a nervous breakdown, mental, a mental breakdown, or just... Something went off. But he was a very different guy after a particular time to when he first started. Now, that's the guy who was in charge during John's day. But John says, there's another one that's going to come after him, a seventh. And that seventh, who hasn't come yet, will only continue for a very short time. And you know why it's only going to continue for a very short time? Because you've only got about three and a half years. That king will be subdued by the little horn. He'll subdue him. So the animals sound. Look, look. Have a a look at. Go back to verse chapter thirteen, verse two. So the heads are only referencing the the Roman Empire during its reign, and finish up with the seventh king, which who hasn't yet come. All right. And verse two says, and the beast which I saw. Verse 2, And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, 
and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth was as the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. So when John sees this beast coming up out of the, out of the, um, out of the, the sea, he sees a part leopard, part lion, part bear. Familiar? John sees the amalgamation of all these previous empires that came. Because you know what? There are aspects of each of those empires in this final one. The Romans didn't just you know, start, start an empire in a vacuum. They built upon the Greeks and the Persians and the, the Babylonians. They built upon and, and, and absorbed different aspects of their culture, their religion and their political system into theirs. And created this, what Paul says, what sorry John says, as a, this monstrosity coming up out of the out of the actual uh, ocean. So there's a lot of similarity between John and Daniel's uh, visions. Now look at verse five, thirteen, chapter thirteen. Sorry, where am I at? Am I am I in the wrong place here? Yeah. Now look at John chapter thirteen, verse five. Mm. Where did I just have you read? Oh, 13 too. Sorry, I'm three pages ahead of you. Um, all right, so these, these animals are familiar. John sees them as part of the, the same Greece, and they represent aspects of the, the Babylonian, Persian, Greek, and Rome, all built into one. Okay, And it says here that the dragon gave... Gives this beast its authority and power. Who's the dragon? The dragon is the devil. Okay, so it's the devil that actually gives this final beast his power, his seat, and great authority. Now turn to Revelation thirteen three. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Now the beast was wounded, it says. Remember the heads? It has seven heads. This last head gets wounded. It has mortal wound. Anyone known what a hydra is? Hydra is in the Greek mythology. You know that one with, with multiple heads? And when you chop off one... Little one grows back. Grows back. It's a little bit like that, right? So this final one, how it says that he's only going to be there for a short time, it gets wounded, and the world's going to say, "Oh, that's fallen apart over here. It's all falling apart." But by some type of providence and some type of miraculous thing, it survives. Okay, so. And the world's going to look at this beast, which is a political system, and it's going to say, "No one can match it." No one can actually defeat it. And they will worship the beast and the devil who gives it the authority. Um, and where it gets wounded is the same thing as, you know that little horn that comes up? And it says that three of those kings actually al align themselves against them and he subdues three of them. That's the same thing. So one of those heads gets killed. There's a war that takes place because the ten kings all don't line up. They all don't agree with what the little horn wants to do. All right? So there's a war that takes place. He subdues three of them. And then it, it revives again and it continues on. Okay. 
Let's continue now. Daniel chapter 7. Don't have to turn there just yet. Don't, don't turn. I'll just read it for you. Because Daniel gives the explanation for that. And he says, The ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall rise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. So this happens all at the end. And this last king that comes up, or this last throne that comes up, gets wounded, and but it revives again. Okay, so turn now with me to Revelation chapter 17, verse 9. Because John gives us now an explanation of what happens with the seven heads. And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth, and there are seven kings. Five are fallen, and one is, and another uh, is not yet come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. And Verse 11. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth. And he's of the seven and goes into petition. Confusing enough. There are seven heads, remember? The seven heads are from, from John's day and before, when the Roman Empire started. And five of them by John's day had already fallen. In John's day, Nero was in place and he was one of those heads. He was the sixth. And John says, well, there's another king that's got to come still. Another political rule that's got to come. But when it comes, it's only going to continue a short time. Because what's going to happen is that rule is going to come up, right? The ten kings are going to be there. There's going to be a bit of a rebellion. The little horn is going to subdue them. And then the, 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 the horn is, becomes the eighth and final one as well. See, it says the eighth head comes up as well. Chops off one. He comes up in its place. He subdues three kings. There's a, bit of a, there's a bit of a power struggle. And finally, he has complete authority over the whole world. And this is the one the Bible calls the Antichrist. The Antichrist is the little horn who speaks blasphemies against God, who fights against Christians, who subdues Christians. He manages to change times and seasons. He does, he does a whole lot of things in this world. And Daniel chapter 7, verse 25 says, And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and he shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and he shall think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand. You know what that means? He can do whatever he wants. He will do whatever he wants with all people on the planet. And he will do it for a time and a times and dividing of a time. Now look at Revelation chapter 13, verse 5. Because John now gives us more information about his little horn, who is the eighth head as well. Revelation 13, 5, it says, And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. How long is forty and two months? Three and a half years. Time and times and half the time. He continues and has dominion in the world for 42 months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. He overcomes the saints. He defeats the saints. 
and power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now, does that sound like the same sort of little horn that we find in Daniel? It is. He speaks blasphemies against God. He wears out the saints. The whole world is given into his hand for 42 months or time and times and half a time. He will make war and he will have dominion. He will have supremacy over the nations of the earth and he will have complete dominion for 42 months. This is what the Bible calls the Great Tribulation. Most of us know that the Tribulation is a seven-year period, but the last three and a half years of those seven years, what the Bible calls the Great Tribulation, it's when everything goes absolutely haywire. And do you know when, when Nero, what I told you Nero starts off a nice, more or less a nice guy, but turns into some sort of crazy person after, after half the time, after, after a while? The same happens here. This little horn starts out small, starts to usurp power, starts to, starts to get influence, and for the first three and a half years, he's generally a benevolent sort of guy. All right? he, he, he tries to do things. Remember, he creates a covenant with Israel that allows them to rebuild their temple, and he says, don't worry, I'll look after you for three and a half years. I'll make sure that there's peace. We'll, make, we'll sign an accord to make sure everything's protected. And Israel goes, wow, fantastic. We can go and rebuild our temple. We can start our sacrifices again. We can get back to what we're doing. And it says that in the three and a half year mark, he flips. And he says, that, that's all gone now. And so when the temple's finished, and these guys start, are starting to, to wanting to do what they have to do, he walks into the temple and he proclaims himself to be God. That's the little horn. That's the eighth head who we see in the Bible. Okay. Now, John wrote that these verses about these, these ten kings, these ten horns, and the ten toes, they haven't come yet. There has never been a time in history, ever, where there have been ten kings under a Roman Empire that have governed the whole of Rome or any other time like that. That's never come into existence before. These ten kings must have ruled over the entire world for this thing to actually take place. Not just a small area. These ten must have the rule over the entire world because the Bible says that every nation, every tongue will be given into his hand and he has to have control over these ten guys in order to achieve his purposes. But it will only come in the end. Many have surmised... Most of you know that many have said that the ten toes or the ten horns represent the European Union, right? You've heard that before. We started in 1951 with six member states. So as soon as they started, people were automatically saying, ah, we've got six, it's going to be seven, eight, nine and ten. You know how many we've got today? Twenty-eight. Might not be Europe. Not ten. And some have surmised that, you know how it says that the, the head, one head was mortally wounded, right? That, that that head that's mortally wounded is going to be a person that dies and comes back to life, right? Some people have said that's going to be Judas Iscariot that comes back, okay? 
Some have said, believe it or not, when um, when John Kennedy became the when John Kennedy became the president of the United States, because he was Catholic, all right, and the Protestants were, were saying, "Oh, hang on a sec. If he gets killed, he's going to come back, and he's going to be because he was the first first Catholic um, first Catholic." Uh, President of the United States. So they thought he was going to be the beast. And they thought to themselves, so he's going to get knocked off. So what happens? So when he gets shot, all right, and, and suffers a head wound, because right, the Bible talks a bit more about that as well, all the Protestants were waiting. <laughs> they were waiting. He's going to come back. He's going to come back. But he didn't come back. And the devil can't actually resurrect anyone. Did you know that? The devil doesn't have the power over, over life. The devil doesn't have the ability to be able to resurrect people. God does, and Jesus holds the keys of death and hell. So the devil can't do that. What this will be will be a system that breaks down and then is revived again. So what will these ten kings be in charge of, though? The scripture doesn't make it entirely clear. But there's another possibility, which I want you to understand. It's only a possibility. It doesn't tell us exactly what will be. But in my estimation... Um, I believe that the world will be divided into ten kingdoms ruled by ten individuals who will have responsibility for those things and they will be the ten kings who will come under the authority of one who will be the Antichrist or the little horn. Now, is there anything, is, is there anything like that today that resembles this? We look at your piece of paper, right? See that, um, see that diagram at the bottom there with the map? And it num- it's numbered 1 to 10, right? Well, I didn't make that map up, okay? It was made up by an organisation called the Club of Rome. The Club of Rome, mind you, right? Now, let me give you a bit of background to the Club of Rome. It was started in 1968. And the, clo- the Club of Rome is a global... This is their description on... on um, on uh, Wikipedia, so you can look it up yourself. Okay, just type in Club of Rome and it gives you all the thing. It's a legitimate thing. It's not something that, uh, that's hiding. It's a global think tank that deals with a variety of international political issues. According to its website, the Club of Rome is composed of scientists, economists, businessmen, international high civil servants, heads of state and former heads of state from all five continents who are convinced that the future of humankind is not determined once and for all and, and that each human being can contribute to improve our society. This ten, these ten zones were created by them. And you know what they call those ten zones? Ten kingdoms. They call them ten kingdoms. Are they Christians? No. They call these things ten kingdoms, and they believe that by dividing the world into ten economic regions, they can be properly and better managed. So let me ask you a question. Is that the thing for the, ten, for the Ten Kings? I don't know. It's possible. Are we gearing up for a one-world government? You betcha, and I don't bet, and I hope you don't either. Right? But in every possible way, the governments of this world, and there's, there are individuals in the background that are trying every which way to get this world to be one, to be governed by one government. We have the United Nations. You have what's called the G20. You have what's called the G7. These political, these political entities that exist are there for a reason. They're there to unite the world. 
When you have free trade agreements between Australia and China and all these things that are opening up, when you have what's called NAFTA in America, where they're trying to, where they're trying to unite all of Canada, America and Mexico into one open market, okay, they're all heading in this particular direction. They're all going in that direction. Um, and I think the Bible is true when it says that in the end there will be ten kings and these, t- these ten kings, three of them will not want to play a game, will not want to play the game and, and be subservient to one, but the other seven will align themselves with the Antichrist and they will subdue three of them and make sure that they stay in their place. And then the whole world will be united. Ten kings under one Antichrist. Okay? Um, if you look at Europe as an example, Europe, they've tried, they've created one currency, they have one commission, they have one, they've created one overarching legal system. Okay? So why are they doing it? A little bit at a time, they're trying to create one thing. It's a bit hard because they've all got competing interests, but they've they've actually got now um, a president over Europe, which is uh, which is the president of the European Council, and his name is Herman van Rompuy, who used to be uh, a president of I think it was uh, of Brussels, was it? Yeah. Okay. So with its 28 member states, all of Europe has one representative. Okay. Now, how hard is it if Europe has one representative for the, the, the Americas and Canada to have one representative and Australia and, and I think it's uh, uh, South Africa over there have one representative and China only needs one representative, so they're going to be happy. Japan has one representative. Now, this might not be the final, the final thing, but it isn't going to be too hard to move to that next stage. You know what it'll take? One little crisis. One more crisis, one more financial meltdown, and they'll say, nah, now's the time we have to fix this whole thing up. We're going to create this whole new system. The world's going to be on one currency. We're going to have one government. We're not going to have any more of these problems, and it's going to be game on. Because turn back with me to Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, as I close this thing up now. Do you remember the picture that we just read? And I'll I'll talk more about this next week. But in the picture of the statue, the Bible says that a stone, which is not cut out, which is cut out without hands, which means it's not man-made. It hasn't been formed and sculpted by a man, which all, all these other things were as part of the statue, comes flying in and smashes the feet of the statue, and then the whole thing comes crumbling down. And that stone... Which, which destroys this statue, fills the whole earth. Is that fair enough? That's, the, that's the, what Daniel tells us. Look at what it says in Daniel 2.44. And in the days of these kings, these ten kings, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever now that's talking about the return of Jesus Christ that's talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ when he takes up his earthly throne in Jerusalem and he creates a world government and it's not a democracy 
It's a theocracy. It's a kingdom. And he's the king. And you know what's beautiful about having a king who's benevolent, who loves you and wants the best for you? That the world will enter into a, an absolutely glorious time. There are some people who believe that, Christ, that Christianity will continue to flourish and grow until the whole world is Christianized and saved. And then Jesus will come. Well, that's the exact opposite of what this thing tells us. Because this thing tells us that the Antichrist and his final power will subdue believers. They will be given into his hand. It will not be a very good time. Uh, some people say that it's only spiritual. But this tells us that all these physical kingdoms are going to be replaced by a physical kingdom, which is also spiritual. And the spiritual kingdom that, that exists in our hearts today will be the physical kingdom as well. And heaven and earth will be united. You know how we pray? Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're praying for when we pray for that. We're praying that this earth will one day follow the laws and rules and the desires and the will of God in every possible way. And as it is in heaven, which is perfect, we are praying for that kingdom to come down to earth and invade earth and to wipe away all these ridiculous kingdoms because man has always managed to mess things up. Regardless of how, how good governments are, Man will always fail and men will always, always mess it up. So, Jesus asked a question when he was speaking to the Pharisees and his disciples and he said, When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Shall he find faith? He asked that rhetorically. And the answer to that is no. He won't find faith because most of them will be killed. So we have, we live in a very special time. We live in what the Bible calls the, 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 the church age or the age of grace. And we have the kingdom of God within us. There will come a day when the Antichrist will rise up. And this won't be possible to meet in this way. And he will subdue the nations and he will kill Christians and believers. Now is the time for us to make a difference in this world. The Bible says, redeem the time because the days are already evil. They're going to be more evil. The Bible says, make use of the time that God's giving you because there isn't very much of it. If you don't know Christ this morning, if you aren't a believer, or if you're not sure, please don't leave this place until you've spoken to one of us and make sure. Because you may die on your way home today. And if you do, you'll be lost for eternity. How does that make any, any sense at all to leave something that important day after day after day and not making a decision about it? There isn't any other decision more important than that in your life. Choose Christ. Come to him. Accept him as your Lord and your Saviour now because there will come a day when the Bible says every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and the glory of the Father. You don't want to be the one to have to be forced on your knees. God bless you. Thank you.